Hello and welcome to episode 128 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Maliki in the U.S. Editor of Waters and I am joined by James R- Rundle, our news editor. Hey. 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 Off to a smashing start here. That's better than the normal three or four takes you take. <laughs> get through this thing you say every time. Yeah. <laughs> so we got some feedback on Twitter.com about... We need to up our levels, so hopefully this is loud enough. Louder! Louder, yeah. And yeah. now you're all probably going to hate it because it's probably too loud, but, you know. It's fine. We'll figure it out at some point here. Um, so, in just a moment, we are gonna we have a guest for you all today, so you don't have to listen to us too much. Uh, Phil Christensen, the Director of Product Management at Ez Software, or as some kids like to call it, Easy Software. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag wrist. Hashtag uh, Phil is going to join, and he's going to talk about. So he wrote a blog post about agile, about the agile methodology, and you know everybody uses this now. You know, I doubt that there's any company that isn't you know doesn't have some sort of agile process with their right. two week sprints and burn down charts and whatever have you. So he's going to come on though and talk about some of the where it can go wrong, where it's not quite appropriate, or where firms, uh, where companies uh, should probably try and readjust their strategy. Uh, so Phil has a lot of experience in this sp- space, and it was a good conversation that we had. He called in from Boston, uh, where he's located. So uh, that will be up in just a minute. But I guess before we get to that, uh, there are a bunch of features and stuff like that up on the website. So definitely go to waterstechnology.com to check those out. But I, I guess at the big news thing from the week on you know July 4th over here in the United States, it wasn't a, a big news week, week at all. Yeah. yeah, And obviously that means London shuts down as well. Yeah, exactly. so, uh, thanks, guys. <laughs> it's <laughs> like we won the war, they get the benefit. Yeah, exactly. um, uh, <laughs> that, uh, there's now a little bit of a debate um, about the CAT Consolidated Audit Trail because of a bill in the House of Representatives here, the American Customer Information Protection Act, that could protect, uh, could prevent the uh, CAT processor, uh, Thesis CAT, from collecting personal information. Yep. Uh, James, maybe give a little bit of background here. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. This is a really nice piece by me, actually. Um, so. Contrary to what a lot of news outlets reported, the SEC did not say that the CAT is going live in November. CAT, the NMS plan, said it was going to go live in November. However, there is a bill going through Congress at the moment, uh, sponsored by Bill Huizenga, a Republican, uh, sorry, a Republican from Michigan, um, that builds off a lot of the concern that happened in the Senate and in the House last year um, over the various cyber breaches of the SEC, the Edgar hack, mm-hmm. um, Equifax, uh, various other things as well. The cap became kind of like a lightning rod for criticism over that. So the chairman of the SEC, Jay Clayton, got grilled like multiple times over this, just saying, you know, if the SEC can't protect its corporate filing system, how can this big, massive database, which is, I think it's going to be taking in something like uh, 65 billion records a day when it goes live or something. It's mm-hmm. the world's largest database, essentially. And they're saying, if you can't keep your company filing system safe, how can you keep this safe? And should people be giving up their social security numbers, their tax information and what have you? Do it. Um, Clayton, I think, was kind of by yards, sort of bemused and slightly hostile towards it. He was like, "Look, guys, we're just the regulator. They're building yeah. this. Um, you know, I'm a Republican, just like y'all, yeah, baby. Come, come on, on yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's have a hug. Come on, Republican group hug." Um, 
when that was over, he was just like, look, we're completely flexible. Like, we don't have to collect this data if you don't want us to. Like, we're literally, you know, you say jump, we say how high. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the bill's going through, but... Uh, what would be, just wonder, what would be the usefulness of collecting PII? Well, because it makes the, the whole point of the... And we had this discussion in Europe with MIFID too as well, um, where you record... Um, where a lot of the trade reports include things like your national insurance number and your address and your date of birth and things like that as well. It's so you can link a specific trade back to a specific trader. So you're not just saying... So it's like a KYC AML kind yeah, of well, angle? Kind of, yeah. Too, so if, if they're investigating, say, um, suspected wash trades or something between two between a broker and a, between a bank, mm-hmm. if you don't have that person's identifiable well information, it's very, very difficult to say that trader Anthony Malaki and Morgan Stanley... Um, was doing a Ross trade with trader James Rundle at brokerage XYZ or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, without that information, you're just saying a trader at Morgan Stanley did it with a trader at brokerage XYZ, which could be any one of a hundred people, hundreds of people, you know. Okay. Um, so it does need the stuff in there. Um, How did MIFID 2 and that rule get around GDPR? Then? Uh, well, I mean, I think. Be- just, and the right to be forgotten, things like that. Essentially, you sign over your. Um, your consent for them to collect this data when you get your authorization from the FCA. Okay. It's part and parcel of being authorized to be a trader is that you know you have, you will file these trade reports and they will be linked back with this personal information inside it. Okay. Um, even though there are various committees in the European Union's sort of mega structure that did question it. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the CAT database without this information is essentially just going to be a giant record of trades. It's going to be great for systematic analysis in terms of like identifying trends and patterns, but terrible for actually drilling down to anything specific in it. But uh, Thesis uh, is kind of in a corpse in a rock and a hard place, really, because the CAT-MS committee is saying, let's push ahead for November, and they're saying, well, hold on a second, if this bill comes through, then we might need to rewrite the entire contract, and we might have to change the whole makeup of it in terms of what we're doing. Yeah, uh, Andre Frank, president of Thesis CAT, uh, told Mia uh, that they're going to have to wait uh, for guidance from CAT-MS committee in the event the laws pass. So this was the quote from Andre Frank to Mia. Uh, under the contract we signed, it was stipulated we had to gather PII data, so we will have to get guidance if the bill passes. The contract tells us what data to take in, so if we're not supposed to get PII data, then it's the CAT NMS committee who tells us what to do. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting because, as you noted, this is uh, sponsored by a Republican in the House um, if this pushes forward before November. Um, yep. You know, right right now, estimates have the Democrats taken back over. But when you have something like the American C- Customer Information Protection Act, and you're talking about the CAT, and this is not something that I would imagine is going to become a partisan well, yeah, uh, I mean, hand grenade, it's, right? It's not something that really falls on either party line, really. It's yeah. like the Democrats are just concerned about data protection. I don't want, yeah, I want my PI not in there as well. I mean, there are workarounds. I mean, thesis, uh, I think CATMS said in one of its updates in June that it was uh, thinking about using non-reversible security hashes instead of the actual numbers so different forms of identification mm-hmm. um, so you can do things like that but um, like one of Mia's sources says in here um, you know, it's, the bill itself is pretty ridiculous it's it's it trying to fix a problem that doesn't exist and it creates inefficiencies to get paid for um, and then her source goes a bit further and says this is what happens when a congressman tries to use the legislative process to try and make a name for himself. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> well, Bill Heisinga has made the Waters Wavelength podcast, there so it go. worked to perfection, my Bill, friends. Bill, we look forward to welcoming you next week. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyone else wants... And actually, I mean, this is quite interesting, I think. Uh, we talk a lot about the protection of data, and we talk a lot about 
what our information gets used for and what we surrender and what we don't. Um, and this is actually kind of, a, I guess, a real-world example of what we've been talking about in the podcast actually playing out in, in market structure right now. But it's just another thing with the cat just being a complete mess halfway through. I mean, it was supposed to go live last November. It didn't. Mm-hmm. The SEC said they weren't going to approve the, uh, the plan that the NMS committee, the NMS committee being self-regulatory organisations like exchanges, um, and then just but then refused to do anything about it. So the SROs were just like, so we're going with the plan then? Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, yeah, so we're <laughs> going to go with the plan. Uh, and the SEC has just for some reason just been a complete... But there's no other way to describe it. Really. <laughs> it's just really bizarre. I mean, I've never come across this situation before where people have been out of compliance with something and the regulator has just refused to say anything about it, mm-hmm. whether it's a journalist, whether it's a people in the know, whether anything else. And, um, you know, I, but that's the only way you can describe it. But <laughs> All right. Well, so on that note, I guess. <laughs> Uh, the committee will decide if uh, it will use any of the PI alternatives by August 15th. So I guess that this is you know what we'll have for the summer, uh, an update on that. Also, so again, they want to go live in November 2018. Um, yeah, but for, that, the, um, for the first wave, right? So for the SROs, yeah. which were supposed to be last year. Yeah. And then they'll phase in the other... Yeah, so uh, they said, the CACME said in a statement, uh, it is uh, pushing for a phased-in reporting timeline for other industry participants. So still, as has been the case with this, God, we've been reporting on this, you know, started with Dan, you know, eons ago. Endlessly, yeah. Um, so this is still going on, and we will have updates uh, for you uh, on that in, well, as it come out, I guess. Yeah. I won't be worrying about it. Mia will be worrying about it. That's Mia her beat be now. About it, yeah. She's on the cat beat <laughs> we, we successfully passed that over to her. Um, all right. So that's all we got. James, are you uh, confident that England will win on Saturday after that dreadful showing? It's coming home, baby. Football Columbus. is coming home. I can it's tell coming you. home? It's, yeah. 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 On a on a losing charter flight back or what? Yes, it's coming home <laughs> via Heathrow Customs uh, on Sunday. <laughs> it's, um, I, I, my prediction, and I'm still top of the uh You took back over the top, bracket. yes. Yep. My prediction is that it's going to be a World Cup final with England-Brazil. England-Brazil. England's going to win. England's going to win. Wow, I like it. I like it. Well, I'm excited for today's game, uh, Brazil versus Belgium. I think that's going to be the best game of the tournament. Hopefully, anyway. Uh, yeah, I was. that was funny during the Columbia game because we were all watching. I was watching it with six, seven other Brits. Yeah. Um, I was the only American there. Or, and Dan was there. And... Yeah, I was. The game was just so turgid oh, and you dreadful. Got so angry during. I was time. literally you getting angry. At the table. You were going, yeah. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. If they get through the final, is this what we could expect? And yeah. like, all these guys on the table going, "Shut the." F- <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, and then so everybody was just like, "Shut up, toe shop." And then when uh, Columbia scored in uh, just at the very end of uh, regulation, <laughs> I was like. Ooh, I might, I might not get out of here uh, without a black eye. Yeah, God, I really hope England comes back and wins this year. Your attitude quickly changed after the point where you're sort of jumping up and down yeah. and screaming. Come on, the England! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. All right, well, we'll we'll see what, if. Uh, what shirt are you wearing? Actually, so I'm dressed. Uh, wearing, uh, I'm wearing a Serbia jersey. You're wearing a Serbian jersey. Yeah, that's um, obscure. It's laundry day, you know. So <laughs> it's uh, more of that than anything else. <laughs> All right, so we will be back next week uh, with uh, James uh, crying about how badly um, England played or, either on Saturday. Or barely able to contain myself. Or it's, barely able to contain yeah. myself, yes. Um, but before that, obviously, we have Phil Christensen, again, Director of Product Management at Ez Software. 
and he will be talking about the agile methodology and more about the challenges about where firms go wrong things like that since you're all using it you know but this is ways perhaps to improve your scrums and things like that um so then stay tuned for phil and we will be back next week james see you then Okay, and we are back now, and I'm joined by Phil Christensen. Uh, Phil is the Director of Product Management for Ez Software. Phil, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Anthony. So a couple of weeks ago, Phil wrote a blog on Ez's site that caught my eye about some of the challenges that have that come with Agile development, some recommendations to get around them. But I guess maybe to start, I guess it's important to state up front that Phil, you and your team, you guys use Agile, you find great benefit from it, but you were kind of trying to encapsulate where it can go wrong and some of your your thoughts, your ideas as to getting it back on track. Is that fair enough? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and uh, I guess what I, I would say is that, you know, I'm a product manager. I think that's important to get out up front. Uh, I, I've uh, been a product manager for some time. And Agile is, is certainly more a development methodology than a, than a product management methodology. So what I wanted to talk about and what I talked about in the piece was a little bit about, you know, how we make sure and leverage that methodology as product managers to, to really properly iterate and, and improve our product and, and keep going in the right direction. Sure. And, you, you know, we'll link to the blog, obviously, but you guys have been working with Agile for about five years, yes? Yeah, we, we transitioned uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of five years ago over to an Agile methodology. We were at Waterfall like most shops before that up until about five years ago. That's right. Can you give me some idea of – let's start with the challenges first before we go into the recommendations as far as ways to improve those. But where, when you've seen Agile not be effective, where does it usually go off track? I think with, like any methodology, uh, you know, nothing is perfect. I think everything has to be looked at and you got to make sure that you're using it to, to really move the goals that you have as an organization forward and, and sort of adapt it to, to, and a lot of people talk about this in different blog posts and different stuff online around making sure you adapt it to what your needs are. And I think that, that you have to, to be careful with some of the more, uh, at least in my opinion, some of the more metrics-driven portions of Agile. Agile is, can really have you focus a lot on things like burndowns and velocities and making sure you're hitting all your numbers and, and you know, cheering when you, when you burn down properly and retrospecting and improving. And there's a big focus on the, on the development side of things and making sure you're iterating properly. The, the challenge I've seen in, in our industry is obviously we build it as stuff. For the most part, we have, we have two, two areas. We have enterprise applications and cloud applications, and it's a little different in each place. But in the enterprise space, the reality is that when you release code out into the field, it can take a while for that to get a critical mass of clients that are using it. We, might, we, we release software every in between six weeks and, and, and three months, depending on the product that we're talking about. Uh, and once it gets out there after a six-week uh, you know, coding cycle, once we release it, it could easily be six months before I have a large group of clients to go talk to about that. So six months later is an eternity from an Agile perspective, right? You've already, the development teams have probably already moved on to something else. You're iterating on some other piece of functionality, but really the most important part of your process is not done. You haven't gotten client validation. You haven't talked to anyone in the field about, you know, what did we build the right thing? And, and really the core of Agile, in my opinion, the core of Agile is all about that iteration and making sure that you are listening to what's happening in the markets, listening to your clients, and adjusting and, and changing your, your way forward. And if you're only getting feedback 
six months after you release a piece of code, that's, you know, not very agile, really. So what I talked about in the blog was how to bring, uh, how to bring that in. So you, there's no real, not a great way to change that. That's just the reality of working in the enterprise space. You're not going to bring that timeline in too much. I think there's ways to reduce it, but you're still going to have some amount of lag. So I talked about how to bring that in. That was really the focus. Well, maybe then to go through a little bit of this, and obviously you get into great deep, uh, great depth um, in the blog post, but what are, let's start with what, what would you say is the first thing that firms need to kind of think about if they're trying, if, if they haven't quite, I guess, gotten the full uh, benefit from Agile and they're trying to re-examine it, what, where do you think that they should start by examining? Uh, that's a good question. I guess, I think what you need to step back from and, and, and just put the metrics aside for a minute, put JIRA down for a moment or whatever tool you're using to, to manage the process and, and look at the, the features and functions that you've released and follow, pick a couple of them and follow them out into the field and, and, and really go and figure out what do people think of that? Yeah, we may have built it iteratively with two-week sprint cycles and released it on time after a six-week release process. But what do people think? Is it good? Is it bad? Did we do right? Did we miss features? And I think what, what I've seen in the field with our client base is you might go out to, the, to a client to, later and you might talk to them and say, look, what do you, what do you think of this, this feature? And they'll say, oh, you know what? I wasn't able to turn that on because of the way we're using strategies. Uh, didn't enable us to use that new feature you built. Or, you know, it's just a sort of a random example. But the reality is you'll learn so much when you talk to clients about these features. So I guess the, the first thing I would do is to, and this is this was also coincidentally this, this, the tip number one that I talked about in there, is adding some aspect of, of follow-up to your release cycle. Don't end your uh, development process with release. The release is not the last step, in my opinion, of, a, of the software development lifecycle. Um, and it's not, it shouldn't be the last step of your agile process either. Um, and, and as we, we follow, um, when, uh, we, with the head of our R and D organization, a guy named Bill Newman, I think you've talked to as well. He, he's a, he really transformed things here when he joined two years ago, three years ago now. And he's a big, uh, advocate for what's this pragmatic marketing approach. Pragmatic marketing is a third party that does, um, training and, and it basically outlines what a product manager should be doing. And they talk a lot about this concept of launch. And launch really is post-release, or, or it is really the idea that you are gathering together a group of features or ideas. Call If you want to have it in a release or two releases or three releases, it doesn't matter. The point is that you follow those items out into a launch process where you pull together some ideas and you, uh, you launch them into the field. And it doesn't matter what methodology you followed. It doesn't matter when those were released. You're going out into the market. You're finding out okay, look, guys, we have a MIFID offering. What does that mean? Did that MIFID offering come from six different SOMS releases or two or one? The clients don't care. What yeah. they want to know about is what the whole offering entitles them to, how it works, and what value it's going to add. And, and really the only way to find that out is by following these releases out into the field. Sure. And just as importantly, one of the, the next thing that you kind of talked about and that I found very interesting is this idea that, as you say, scrum masters, that they should be able to question the engineers and that there should really be a give and take of conversation there. Do you find that that doesn't often happen, that there's people try and carve out their territory and, you know, kind of hold tight to what they believe? Yeah, I think depending on your organization structure, Oftentimes, what I've seen is that scrum masters fall into more of the engineering hierarchy, whereas 
product managers are more often in a different hierarchy in organizations. So scrum masters are very much empowered to ask engineers about their decisions and push an engineer and say, look, why did you make that estimate? Or, you know, do you, are you really, uh, are, are you really sure you can meet this, this timeline or did you use the best practice? Did you write unit tests? Scrum masters are very good at these types of questions. Uh, what I don't see scrum masters doing very often is, is pushing PMs. And you, sometimes there's sort of a power struggle type of thing. Like you talked about, a PM is sometimes a more senior person in an organization. They have the industry experience. Uh, they're, they're the one sort of driving a lot of, of the strategy. Um, but they're, they can make mistakes just like, just like engineers. They can cut corners just, just like anybody else. And I think scrum masters need to be empowered to, you know, first they need to understand the product and not just the engineering process to be able to, to do this. But once they understand the product, they need to feel comfortable challenging PMs and saying, look, um, for example, you know, how many clients have you talked to about that feature? Have, or or sending, a, sending a PM back to on the pavement being like, look, I think this is a great story you've written in Jira. It makes sense to me. Why don't you go talk to one more client about it and come back to us next week? I've never heard a Scrum Master say that in my uh, 10 years of being a product manager, and I think they should. Okay. And that's the other thing, you know, I, I, from what I've found, and correct me if, if I'm wrong from what you've seen, but a lot of people are liking, there's a, you know, the new term is now, you know, using DevOps. And if you, a true form of DevOps is different than agile. And one of the benefits of true DevOps, even though it can be sometimes, sometimes people use it interchangeably with agile, even though at its core, it is different, is that there is... Um, more formalized meetings and more stringent documentation in Agile. And that's kind of, it seems like you also, that you are pushing for that documentation to become more improved if you're going to have a, a better Agile process. Is that fair enough to say? Yeah, and I think what DevOps does is, I do think it pushes closer to the types of things I'm describing. And you're really connecting the development team closer to what's happening in the field by forcing them to be a part of that operation after release. You know, in the enterprise space, when you're not part of the operations and you're not involved directly necessarily with the support, you don't always see what's happening in the field. So something like documentation, you know, you as an engineer don't ever get to reap the value of good documentation. Uh, if you're in a DevOps model, that documentation becomes vital. And the better it is, the fewer phone calls you're going to receive. And so there's sort of a, you know, incentive there in the DevOps model to have dev better documentation. I think there's some truth in that. Okay. And then you talk about this MVP, this idea of MVP releases and that people kind of need to, I guess, move away or, or improve upon that. What, what, were, what were you trying to get across there? Yeah, I think that, you know, I was thinking back on some of the stuff I've built in the past. I've built a number of different features. You know, we talked years ago about Form PF way back in the day. And, sure. uh, you know, one of the first things I worked on was some of our reporting capabilities in, in the OMS. And there is a, a incentive as a product manager, and I don't think it's a good thing, but it's just it's the way you work as a PM too. Once you have approval for an idea or approval for a strategy, you know, you, you as a PM want to keep that alive. You know, it becomes what you're working on. You become very married to it. Um, it's sort of your ideas, your strategy, and whatever you can do to push it forward is, is how we make names for ourselves as PMs. And getting through to phase two, phase three, phase four types of functionality can often be easier 
as a product manager than that phase one. Phase one is always the hardest because that's where you got to really justify it. What's the return on value? You know, where how many clients are going to use this? And what kind of you know what kind of prospects are asking for it? That's where the hard questions get asked. Once you've made it through that, sometimes to, to come into a room of execs and be like, you know, remember I, I convinced you that we should work on this last month. I'm going to add a few more things to it. What do you think? And you know, it's a lot more nodding heads. Uh, but I think so. I think we need to get away from that as product managers. I, I get that it makes life easier, but we should apply the same scrutiny on every aspect of the improvements we're making to our products, whether it's phase one or phase six um, of, of a quote-unquote feature set. And, uh, I just think it's an, it, it makes life harder. Some of these yeah. things I laid out are not simplifications of the job of a product manager, but it's not a new job. And you know, the other thing then that you talk about, and you know, I can very much relate to this, is when you're going through these meetings and stuff like that, you can start to bore some people to death, as uh, you, you mentioned the thing, but right. and making too much about the metrics and the methodology. How how would you go about changing? How would you encourage people to make it so that people are more engaged with these, uh, you know, biweekly you know meetings stuff like that? Right. You know, I know in the uh, the I guess it's the, I don't know if you've read this Netflix manifesto that's very popular online about corporate culture. Well, one thing they, they talk about in there is, you know, not letting metrics be a proxy for success. And I think that that is a very easy um, road to go down as an organization. You know, the second you see you're hitting your, your quote unquote metrics, everyone, you know, cheers. You put up the mission accomplished banner and you, you release the code and you, you did it on time. But there's, that's, just because you're hitting those metrics doesn't mean you're succeeding as an organization. Uh, and I think this idea of taking your sprint demos and making them less about the team and more about the stakeholders can start to do that. And I've, I've absolutely been in many sprint demos where you suddenly are talking about, you know, interrupter buffers and you're talking about, um, you know, why this bug worked this way on SQL 2012 and not on 2008. And, you know, it, it's just you lose track of your business focus very quickly. Yeah. But the point of those meetings is really to get the feedback and get the interaction. The more you can facilitate as a product manager discussion and, and uh, the, the open narrative and, and the open discussion of ideas, the better you're going to be. And we, we firmly believe that um, and I believe that, you know, as a product manager, you're a catalyst. You can't be coming up with all the ideas. You need to get other people talking and, and pull all those great ideas out and consolidate them. And uh, the only way to do that is by building a story and building a conversation and making a safe environment where people can feel like they can contribute. Um, and so I, I suggest that people, at least occasionally, take that sprint meeting over as a product manager and, and build a PowerPoint, pretend like you're presenting to the CEO and, and start a discussion. Um, now, obviously, I think there's, there's probably scrum masters out there that would say, you know, these sprint meetings are also an opportunity for engineers to showcase what they've accomplished, get some recognition. And I think that's important, too. Uh, so I don't know that we take all of them over, but I, I think over once in a while, we put that PM back in the driver's seat. Sure. And, you know, the other thing I guess I'm interested in is, you know, so Agile, some companies use it five years, 10 years now, we, you know, as companies, Waterfall still is prevalent, certainly in the industry. Agile's become, you know, very ubiquitous at many firms. Uh, so it, it surprised me when I hear, you know, companies that don't use it. But 
is there now an evolution or do you see on the forefront this evolution either with through DevOps or maybe some other methodology that might be more appropriate for specific pieces of product management? So Agile right now obviously is very popular, but maybe is there are there other kind of methodologies out there that exist that you guys are maybe starting to look at, maybe experiment with, or is this kind of where you're at right now? Well, I guess I would I would give you sort of a semi-answer on this. And what I'll say is that I, in, in pragmatic marketing, one thing that we had an instructor, the instructor I had, we talked a lot about this topic of Agile. And, and, you know, every PM in the room was talking about how to apply Agile to their job as a product manager. And at one point, the teacher got frustrated and he said, look, guys, you know, the Agile is a development methodology. If, if the developers want you to stand in a room, run in a circle, hop on one foot and yell requirements into the air, do that. Because it's not your methodology, you don't have control over it, you're a product manager. So I think to some extent, we as PMs need to think about that and, and realize that, you know, we are here to understand the market, understand the business, and, and be the conduit to that into the organization, and we'll follow whatever methodology is there. So not really answering your question, because I'm a product manager, and uh, <laughs> what I do. No, fair enough, fair enough. Well, Phil, this is uh, all good stuff. I think our listeners uh, certainly gained some benefit from it. But thanks so much uh, for chatting with us today. Yeah, I greatly appreciate the time, Anthony. 